Good morning. We have been looking forward to this day for a long time. And on behalf of the whole congregation here in Mission Viejo, to everyone who's visiting with us this morning, thank you. Uh, from the bottom of our hearts, thank you for being here. Thank you to everybody from the Newland Street congregation for uh, making the trek down here to be with us. Uh, you are such an encouragement to us, and we are so grateful uh, for the opportunity to worship alongside you guys, and we hope that as encouraged as we are by your presence, you might be as encouraged uh, by ours as well. To everyone who's visiting with us for the first time this morning, welcome, and thank you as well for being here. If you're here for the first time, uh, I would love personally to have an opportunity to meet with you, to get to know you a little bit better. I'm usually at the end of service kind of standing by those back doors at the auditorium there, uh, if you would do me the honor, maybe seek me out and just introduce yourself to me, that would mean a great deal to me. I would ask all of you to be opening your Bibles to Luke chapter 24. Luke chapter 24, that's where we're going to take the bulk of our lesson from this morning, is Luke chapter 24. And as we get there, I would ask if you would, do your best to imagine with me this morning. Imagine being one of those earliest followers of Jesus Christ, all those years ago. It's the week leading up to the Passover, and you've all traveled to Jerusalem together. And there's this palpable excitement in the air in this city, not just for the Israelites who've gathered together for one of their great annual celebrations, but especially among Jesus' closest followers who have followed him to Jerusalem with a full expectation that something amazing is going to happen. They're not exactly sure what it is, but they know that it's coming. And the week started off with a bang. As Jesus rode into town on a donkey colt, people were shouting Hosanna, calling him king of Israel, laying palm branches in the street as he rode into town, and you can feel it. It's coming. It's coming. And then just a few days later, the unthinkable happens. As he gathered together for the Passover feast, and as he makes his way into the garden, he's betrayed by one of your own. And he's arrested, and he's put on trial. And the next morning, he's taken to Pilate, and then he's taken to Herod, and then he's brought back to Pilate. And Pilate insists that he can find no reason to condemn this man, especially to death, but the crowds are insisting that he turn them over, and so he gives in to the pressure of the crowds, he delivers Jesus over, He's mocked, he's beaten, and he's nailed to a cross in a place called Golgotha. And his enemies are chanting victory. And his disciples are left wondering what in the world just happened. But all those who knew him, including the women who had followed him from Galilee, stood at a distance watching these things and imagined being in their shoes, wondering how it all went wrong. This was not what was supposed to happen. This is not what victory looks like. Victory does not look like defeat. And that's exactly what you just witnessed, right? You witnessed Jesus' defeat at the hands of the enemy. And now it's the third day since all of this took place. Jesus' body was gathered off the cross by a rich man named Joseph who buried him in a tomb hastily, because the Jewish celebration was upon them and they needed to prepare the body quickly. And so 
Sunday morning comes around, it's early Sunday morning, and some of the women decide to go to the tomb so they can properly take care of that body that was buried in haste. And this is where I would invite you to join me in this story in Luke chapter 24. Starting in verse 1, we read this. On the first day of the week, very early in the morning, the women took the spices they had prepared and they went to the tomb. They found the stone rolled away from the tomb, but when they entered, they did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. While they were wondering about this, suddenly two men in clothes that gleamed like lightning stood beside them. And in their fright, the women bowed down with their faces to the ground. But the men said to them, Why do you look for the living among the dead? He is not here. He has risen. Remember how he told you, while he was still with you in Galilee, the Son of Man must be delivered over to the hands of sinners, be crucified, and on the third day be raised again. Then they remembered his words. They went to the tomb because that's where you go to find a dead body. But they get there and the angel reminds them, you're looking in the wrong place because you don't find the living among the dead. And then they surprise them with these words, you should have known this. Don't you remember how Jesus prepared you for this reality? And then they started to remember the things that Jesus had taught them. So what happens next? We pick up in verse 9. It says, when they came back from the tomb, they told all these things to the eleven and to the others. It was Mary Magdalene, Joanna, Mary the mother of James, and the others with them who told this to the apostles. But they did not believe the women, because their words seemed to them like nonsense. That doesn't make any sense. You're claiming that his body was gone and that angels appeared to you? None of this makes any sense, and so they discounted his nonsense. They're clearly grieving, and they just don't know what's happening. Verse 12, Peter, however, got up and ran to the tomb. Bending over, he saw the strips of linen lying by themselves. Those were the linen strips that had covered the body of Jesus. And he went away, wondering to himself what had just happened. They don't, they don't understand yet what's happening. To them, this is just another catastrophe, because now the body of Jesus that they want to go pay honor to has disappeared. What do they do with this information? And so we continue in verse 13, and we're introduced to two disciples in particular. And, and Luke begins to tell us this story of these two men. It says, now that same day, so this is still Sunday, that same day two of them were going to a village called Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem. And I want you to ask the question, why? Why were these men going anywhere? Why were they leaving the collection of Jesus' disciples in Jerusalem? Where were they headed and why were they going there? And I think the answer to that question lies in what is said to us in two different places later on in this text. In verse 17 and later on in verse 21, we read this. First verse 17. They stood still, their faces downcast. These were sad men. Why were they sad? Because they had been defeated. Furthermore, look what it says in verse 21. But we had hoped that he was the one who was going to redeem Israel. Think about the sadness lingering in those words. But we had hoped. In other words, they'd given up on that hope. We thought he was the one we were waiting for. We thought he was Messiah. But we were wrong. And we know we're wrong because we saw him dying on that tree. And that's not what victory looks like. Messiah didn't come to lead us into defeat. He came to lead us 
into victory. And so these are men who are heartbroken and they're defeated. And so they're leaving because there's no reason in their minds to stay in Jerusalem any longer. And so we pick up from there in verse 14. It says, when they were talking with each other about everything that had happened, they talked and discussed these things with each other. And Jesus himself came up and walked along with them. But here's the most surprising and honestly weirdest part of this whole story. And this is what Luke is trying to invite us into, the drama of this story as it, as it introduced to us right here, that they see Jesus walking alongside him, but what's the problem? They were kept from what? Recognizing him. So here's this man walking alongside them, but they don't know who it is. And how can that possibly be? What a strange story. Well, yes, it's strange. And we're supposed to think about the strangeness of it as we interject ourselves into this story, and it causes us to ask this question, is it really possible to walk alongside Jesus and not see him? Yes. Yes. I know it's possible. I know it's possible because I've done it. I have in my walk with Jesus thought I knew him only to be surprised by what I had yet to learn. I know it's possible because I've watched some of you do the same thing. We've all been in that place before where we thought we knew Jesus, but he was hidden from us because of our own lack of understanding. There are things Jesus says to us that are so challenging that it's all we can do to wrap our heads around them sometimes. You remember when Jesus told his disciples, if you want to come after me, you must first deny yourself and take up your cross daily and follow after me. Because if you're looking to save your life, you're going to lose it. But if you lose your life for my sake, you remember what he said? You will what? You will find it. You think about those words. Take up your cross daily and follow me. Now imagine hearing that for the first time as a disciple and wondering why in the world Jesus is referencing a cross and what in the world that has to do with anything about following him. And now, after watching his body hang on that cross, looking back on that moment... And realizing what he was saying. That his invitation to take up a cross and follow him is an invitation into his death. And you think about the challenge associated with that kind of invitation. How on earth could I bear under the burden of that cross and take it to that place of his death alongside him? Let's be honest there are times in our walk with God where we feel like we can do that, right? You've experienced those spiritual highs. I felt it this morning as we were singing together. Felt ready to take on the world in that kind of excitement, right? In that environment. You know what it's like to be on those spiritual highs where you feel like your faith can conquer anything. But do you also know what it's like to feel those spiritual lows, those valleys that we travel through sometimes in our walk with our Savior, where you feel like your faith is barely hanging on by a thread. You know that feeling? And you're thinking, take up my cross. I can barely get myself in the car and drive to church. How am I going to take up my cross? And then we remember that this same Jesus said to us, take my yoke upon you. Because my yoke is easy and my what? My burden is light. He's not asking us to do what he did. He's asking us to give up any form of selfish ambition so that we can be overcome by the love that he put on display for us when he took on that cross 
on our behalf? Are we ready to give up everything and journey alongside Him? A journey that leads us to a place of self-denial. But along that journey of self-denial, we come to realize who we really are and who we were always made to be. Image bearers of our God. Set free from bondage through the love of our Savior, Jesus Christ. There is a challenge in walking alongside Jesus. And sometimes you think you can see him clearly, and other times he's hidden from view. And Luke is asking us to consider all this through this story. For these men, they're prevented from seeing Jesus, even though he's right there next to him. They don't know who he is. And so the story continues. And I would remind you, before we get back into the text, of two other occasions, actually in John's Gospel, where disciples are prevented from seeing Jesus. Remember, they're not expecting a resurrection. They're heartbroken over death. And so they don't understand what's taking place. In John chapter 20 and verse 14, Mary Magdalene, in John's story, goes to the garden. Jesus appears to her, but do you remember the story? Who does she think he is? The gardener. She thinks she's talking with the gardener. At this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing there, but she did not realize that it was Jesus. The next chapter, John 21 and verse 4, says, Early in the morning Jesus stood on the shore, but the disciples who were out in the lake fishing that morning did not realize that it was Jesus. And then, you keep reading, you go back to Mary's account, Jesus says something to her. You know what he says? Mary. That's it. And the sound of her rabbi's voice suddenly wakes her up, and she realizes who it is that she's talking to. For these men, these disciples that are fishing in John chapter 21, what was it that finally took the blinders off and allowed them to see who Jesus was? They haven't caught anything, and Jesus says, why don't you try the other side of the boat? And you remember what happened? There was so many fish, they could barely bring it into the boat. And instantly, Peter is taken back in his mind to when he first became a follower. And that same thing had happened, and he fell on his knees at Jesus' feet and said, Lord, depart from me, I'm a sinful man. And he jumps out of the boat ahead of everybody else, racing to shore to see his risen Savior. What is it for these two men that will finally allow them to take the blinders off and see who Jesus is? Well, let's pick up in the text. Verse 17, he asked them, What are you discussing together as you walk along? And they stood still, their faces downcast. One of them named Cleopas asked him, Are you the only one visiting Jerusalem who does not know the things that have happened there in these days? Are you serious? Like you were here with us and you don't have a clue what's going on? What things, Jesus asked, prodding. Verse 19, About Jesus of Nazareth, they replied. He was a prophet. Powerful in word and deed before God and all the people, the chief priests, our rulers, handed him over to be sentenced to death, and they crucified him. But we had hoped that he was the one who was going to redeem Israel. And what is more, it's the third day since all this took place, and some of our women amazed us. They went to the tomb early this morning, but they didn't find his body. And they came and told us that they had seen a vision of angels who said he was alive. Then some of our companions went to the tomb and found it, just as the women had said, but they did not see Jesus. In other words, we don't know what's going on. We just know that our hope has been destroyed. So Jesus says to them in verse 25, How foolish you are and how slow to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Did not the Messiah have to suffer these things and then 
enter his glory, and beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he explained to them what was said in all the scriptures concerning himself. So he begins to shed light on the situation. You think that this is all gone off script, but this all happened according to God's eternal plan. And he begins to show them what the scripture actually said. But what's amazing is even through that, they still don't see Jesus for who he is. The blinders are still on to some extent. And we can be critical of them, and we join Jesus in, in, in that critical look at, at their lack of understanding and say, oh, how foolish they were. If we were there, we would have gotten it, right? Well, we benefit from 2,000 years of being able to reflect on this moment. So yes, we get it today, but had we been in their shoes at the time, just understand where they're coming from for just a moment. As John pointed out to us when we took the Lord's Supper together, Jesus gave that Lord's Supper in the context of what special meal? Passover. And he took elements of that Passover meal and he applied them to himself and he said, this bread is my broken body. This fruit of the vine, this wine is my blood poured out for you for the forgiveness of your sins. He's connecting himself to the events of Passover. Now, if you're a Jew at that time, you're expecting a new Passover. And that can only mean one thing. What did God do for the Israelites in the Passover? He overcame the oppressor, and he set them free. And so for them, what do you think they're expecting in the context of that Passover situation, but for Jesus to do the same thing Moses did? Overcome the enemy and lead them into freedom from oppression. This is what they're expecting to take place that week. And instead, what Jesus meant was, not just that he would be a new kind of Moses and lead them into freedom, but he would be also a new kind of lamb. And he would become a sacrifice on their behalf. That's difficult to wrap your mind around until you get to see the story as it unfolded and understand it from God's perspective. This is what Jesus is giving these men in that moment, is God's perspective on things, but it's still slow to sink in. And so, what happens next? What will it be that finally opens their eyes? Verse 25, he said to them, how foolish you are, and then he begins with Moses and all the prophets to explain to them what was said about himself in Scripture. And then we get to verse 28. It says, as they approached the village to which they were going, Jesus continued on as if he were going farther. But they urged him strongly, stay with us, for it is nearly evening, the day is almost over. So he went in to stay with them. And then this happens, verse 30. When he was at the table with them, he took bread, gave thanks, broke it, and began to give it to them. Now let me ask you, what does that sound a lot like? It sounds a lot like the Lord's Supper given in the context of that Passover meal, doesn't it? For Mary, she needed to hear Jesus call her name. For those disciples on the boat, they needed to see Jesus do what he had done for them at the beginning. For these men, they needed to hear those words again so they could finally put all of the pieces of the puzzle together. Oh, this is what you meant. And so he's at table with them, he give, takes the bread, he breaks it, he gives thanks, he gives it to them, and then it says in verse 31, then their eyes were opened and they recognized him, and he disappeared from their sight. And they asked each other, were not our hearts burning within us while he talked with us on the road and opened the scriptures to us? Finally, they understand and they get to see Jesus, not just as this guy walking alongside them, but yes, a man in flesh and blood walking and talking and even doing what? 
eating. He has been resurrected. They see the risen Savior. And then this is my favorite part of the story, what happens at the end in verse 33 and following. So what do these guys do now? They had given up. They were heading for home because there was no hope left. And yet, verse 33, they got up and they returned at once to Jerusalem. They get it now. The story's not over. It's just beginning. And hope is not lost. The embers of hope are burning within their hearts. And it says they found the eleven and those with them assembled together and saying, It is true. The Lord is risen and has appeared to Simon. And then the two told what had happened on the way and how Jesus was recognized by them when he broke the bread. They assemble back together. And it's time now to get to work. Because finally we understand what really happened on that cross. And finally we see the resurrected Jesus. And finally we put the pieces of the puzzle together. Finally we understand this was God's eternal purpose. Finally we get it. That what we thought was defeat is actually victory on our behalf. Finally they understand. And what do they do? They come together. And if you've never read Luke... I would encourage you to read Luke and read it right on into the book of Acts. Luke starts the book, of Acts, or the book of Luke by saying, these are the things that Jesus began to do and teach. Guess what the book of Acts is? The things that Jesus continued to do. Even though he ascends into heaven in the first chapter, we find his assembled church continuing his work on earth. And that's what we've been called to do this morning. And in reflecting on this story, this is what I would ask you to think about with me this morning. Just a few things. But let me ask you this question. How does our future hope shape our current reality? This is what we do with the resurrection. We understand, looking backwards, the historical significance. We understand, looking toward the future, what it means for us in the future. Our hope lies in that empty tomb that one day he will come back and he will raise us to be with him forever. We understand that we look forward to physical resurrection so we can reign with him forever. We understand the future hope. But my question for us this morning is, do we fully grasp how that future hope shapes and colors our present reality? What it means to live like people who are animated by the hope of resurrection here and now. And I don't know about you, but I'm in desperate need of some hope this morning. And it breaks my heart to think of all the people in this world who have no hope. Maybe they've never found it. Maybe they had it and they gave it up. Maybe someone took, them, took it from them, but whatever it is, there are people all over this world and maybe some of you this morning that are without hope. Like these men on the road to Emmaus, your faces are downcast and you're not sure where to put your hope anymore. Can I ask you humbly for a few minutes to consider some hopeful things with me? I want to remind you of a few passages. As the New Testament authors reflect on the resurrection, they look back, they look forward, but they plant us firmly in the here and now as a people shaped by resurrection. I would remind you of what the Hebrew author said in Hebrews chapter 2, verses 14 and 15. Since the children have flesh and blood, he too, talking about Jesus, shared in their humanity so that by his death, listen to this, by his death he might break the power of him who holds the power of death, that is, the devil, and free those who all their lives were held in slavery by their fear of death. Outside of Christ, this is who we are, people enslaved by fear of one thing, 
death. Because we know the sting of death all too well. Make no mistake about it. Our number one enemy in this life is death. God did not create us so that we might suffer and die. He created us to live with him forever. And then death entered the story right at the beginning of the story. When we chose to rebel against God, we chose a path of death. And God from that moment forward put in motion a plan to take away the sting and power of death so that we might be a victorious people. I'll remind you of what 1 Corinthians 15 verses 50 through 58 say, and we already read it together this morning, so I won't read it again. I encourage you to spend some time in it this afternoon if you get time. But as Paul spends a great deal of time in that entire chapter leading people to think about the reality of resurrection, he talks about that time is coming in the future when we will get to proclaim final victory over death, when we will get to say, oh, oh, death, where is your victory? And oh, death, where is your sting? We will get to see in the future resurrection a final victory over death. But we are tasting that victory now. And so turning our attention to what it looks like to live as people who live in hope of that future victory, he says this, Therefore, my dear brothers and sisters, stand firm. Let nothing move you. Always give yourself fully to the work of the Lord because you know that your labor in the Lord is not in vain. What labor? We've got work to do, folks. We've got work to do. Work in the kingdom of God to be about our Father's work. Spreading the seed of hope to everyone we come in contact with. And there are times when this is difficult for us because we don't feel all that victorious. It feels like death is the final word. But it's not. And the proof of that lies in the open tomb. I would remind you of what Peter says in 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 3 through 9, if you'd like to turn over there with me. 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 3 through 9. Peter, again, he looks forward to resurrection, but he fixes our attention on the here and the now. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In his great mercy, he has given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. You hear Christians talk a lot about being born again. What does that even mean? It means that we have a life that has been made new. We're not just waiting for a renewal of life. We are experiencing a renewal of life now. We walk as new creatures, and we'll talk more about that in just a second. He has given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. It is that resurrection that animates everything about who we are as people. It gives us, as was already said this morning, a foundation for our faith and our hope. And into an inheritance that can never perish, spoil, or fade. This inheritance is kept in heaven for you who through faith are shielded by God's power until the coming of salvation that is ready to be revealed in the last time. And then this is what Peter does, knowing again that we struggle with all of this. He says this in verse 6, In all this you greatly rejoice, even though now for a little while you may have had to suffer grief in all kinds of trials. Anybody here suffering grief this morning? Anybody here burned out by the trials you've had to undergo in this life? Anybody find themselves in that moment? Peter knows that. But this is what he says. These have come so that the proven genuineness of your faith, of greater worth than gold, which perishes even though refined by fire, may result in praise, glory, and honor when Jesus Christ is revealed. 
Though you have not seen him, you love him. And even though you do not see him now, you believe in him and are filled with an inexpressible and glorious joy. For you, listen to what he says, for you are receiving the end result of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Peter's very careful about his vocabulary here, and at the end here he uses a present participle on purpose. As he looks forward to our salvation, he says salvation is this thing that we have yet to fully realize, but it's also this thing that we are experiencing now. We are receiving right now in the present tense the end result of our faith, the salvation of our souls. If you've got this watered-down, hopeless version of Christian reality where God has called you to just go about your business and hope one day that you might get to go to heaven with Him, you have lost the plot. There's no hope in that. There is hope in this, that that future victory is secured for us. It's a promise made to a God, by a God who does not break His promises. And we know what our future holds for us because we know what our Savior has done for us. And we know who our God is. We know all that, and so if that's true, then in the present, what do we do? We live as people who have already grabbed a hold of that victory. We live as people full of hope, full of victory, full of confidence in our Lord and Savior. We live as people who walk in newness of life now. And that's what Paul is saying in Romans chapter 6, and I wish I had another hour just to go through Romans chapter 6, but I don't. Would you add that to your reading list today? Romans chapter 6. Do you not know that those of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus have been baptized into his fill-in-the-blank death? Invited again to participate in that death of Jesus. Why? What does Paul go on to say? We were therefore buried with him through baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, we too might what? Live a new life. He's not talking about that future resurrection here. That's the hope we cling to, but he's talking about the life we live anew now. We walk in newness of life now. Resurrection isn't just a future hope. It is a present reality for God's people. Won't you join me as we walk together in hope of the resurrection that we are already partaking in? Have you experienced that newness of life that comes only by joining Christ in his death at baptism. Have you experienced that yet? If not, we need to talk. And then I would leave you with this final passage. Ephesians chapter 2, and I'm going to read a little bit more than just those two verses. If you turn over there with me, Ephesians chapter 2. One of my favorites. I'm going to start in verse 1. And I want you to pay close attention to the contrast Paul is making between who we were and who we now are. Ephesians 2 and verse 1, As for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins. You were, what? Dead in your transgressions and sins. Here's the, the terrible irony of human life is that we spend our entire lives terrified of death not knowing that we're already dead apart from Christ. This is who you were, dead in your transgressions and sins, in which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world and of the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now at work, and those who are disobedient. All of us 
also lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our flesh and following its desires and thoughts. Like the rest, we were by nature deserving of wrath, but because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ Jesus, even when we were dead in transgressions. It is by grace that you have been saved. Even when we were dead, Christ has made us what? Alive. Where do you find your existence this morning? Are you still walking among the dead? Or have you joined the living in Jesus Christ? And God raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus in order that in the coming ages he might show the incomparable riches of his grace expressed in his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. For it is by grace you have been saved through faith. This is not from yourselves. It is the gift of God. Not by works so that no one can boast. For we are God's handiwork, created in Christ Jesus to do what? To do good works. We've got work to do, which God prepared in advance for us to do. Why are days like this so special? They are to me. I hope they are to you. They're special because, did you hear the singing this morning? All those extra voices? That makes it special. It's special just to look around and, and remind ourselves that we don't exist on islands. We are part of a community of believers. And we need that community to thrive in this life. It's good to be reminded of that. It's good to be reminded that, guess what? We can come together if we decide to. And it's good when we do that. And I hope we'll do it more often. But more than anything, I think of this. I think of the fact that on this day, you all chose to be here. And you did that for a reason. Because the resurrection of Jesus means something to you. We are called to be at work in this world. But we are not a part of this world. We don't belong to this world. We will never be anything other than sojourners in this world, knowing that a city waits for us, but at work while we remain here in the flesh. And while we're at work in this world, we have opportunities like this to come together and remind ourselves of where we truly belong, of where our citizenship truly lies. And on this morning, and I don't mean just Easter morning, but I mean Sunday morning, the Lord's Day. You can look for me out in the world, but you won't find me there. And I hope that even if I were to look for you out in the world, I will not find you there. I can only find you in one place, and that's here, gathered together with the Lord's people, celebrating victory over death, reveling in God's love and mercy and kindness. This is the only place you will ever find us on the Lord's day because after all, why on earth would you look for the living among the dead? I'm so grateful to be gathered together with the living this morning. If hope is what you need, if a community is what you long for, if the grace and mercy of our God are those things that you are looking for more than anything else in this world this morning? I want to make sure that you don't leave here this morning without taking advantage of this opportunity to take a step closer to your God, 
Won't you walk alongside your resurrected Savior this morning? Won't you join him in life and embrace all the goodness that he has to offer you? We're going to stand and we're going to sing one more song. As we do that, I would like to invite you to think about ways that we might be able to serve you here through prayer, through encouragement, through Bible study. Maybe you've, you're ready to make that decision to put Christ on in baptism this morning. Whatever it is, we stand as a congregation to serve you, and we want to offer that opportunity to, to do that this morning. Let's stand and let's sing. I'm going to ask Richard, would you join me up here? And if any of you need anything, would you please come forward and let one of us know? Let's stand and let's sing this final song together.